Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Derek Penslar, who teaches at the University of Oxford as well as the University of Toronto, here to talk about his new book, Jews and the Military, A History, published in 2013 by Princeton University Press and out this month in paperback. Derek, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you, Jason. I'm glad to have you. So let's jump right in. Based on the title, Jews and the Military, one might think this is a book about the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. But in fact, Israel's not the main story here. Instead, what is the focus of the book? No, the focus of the book is really the whole history of the Jews of uh, modern times leading up to the creation of Israel. Because my whole argument is that uh, the Jews have had a very long, at times difficult, but at times uh, rewarding and meaningful relationship with armies uh, throughout modern history. That goes against the grain of a lot of what we perhaps have been taught to think and the way people in Israel and the diaspora alike might think about the Jewish experience. But my book tries to show exactly what those relationships have been. And so Israel, you say Israel casts a shadow on the story of those millions of Jews who served in diaspora militaries. What do you mean by that? Well, the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 was a um, really a, a tremendous event in terms of reviving Jewish spirits after the catastrophe of World War II and the Shoah. And I think that, that 1948 really created a kind of a, uh, a kind of zero hour after which it was very hard to understand anything that had happened before in, in, in the same way as had been the case before the, the war. So this long history in which, as you mentioned, millions of Jews had served their various countries as soldiers, and not just as soldiers, as officers, as commanders, in, in various ways, it was all either dismissed as unimportant because the Jews had suffered so terribly during the war, or it was dismissed as simply uh, bad faith. The Jews had served countries that had ultimately betrayed them. Well, in some cases that was true, but I think that neglects the complexity of the extent to which Jews in modern times felt truly at home in the various countries in which they lived. So in order to understand what happens in 1948, you really have to understand the relationship between Jews and the army more broadly in modern times. Is that right? I think so. And it's, and, and it's actually something which the founders of the state of Israel were very well aware of, since so many of the, uh, the early commanders of the Israel Defense Force had, in fact, been experienced in uh, various armies in Europe. They'd been in the Red Army, in the Soviet Union. They'd been in various European armies. And David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, defense minister of the state of Israel, also understood this. He, he knew perfectly well the Jews had gained military experience abroad and hoped to capitalize on that experience when creating what would become the Israel Defense Force. So Jews are sometimes thought of or like to think of themselves meek and studious, not aggressive, militaristic. But you say historically this is not true. Is that right? Well, there, there is this textual sort of heritage that we all live with, which is that we are the children of Jacob. Uh, Jacob in the Hebrew Bible is portrayed as, a, you know, like you said, a meek and mild man. And he's the opposite of his brother Esau, who in the Jewish tradition is associated with, with uh, Gentile authority, with hunting, with killing, 
rapaciousness, and that is the Jews' textual heritage. Of course, there's some truth to it in that Jews for thousands of years did not live in sovereign states. They were spread throughout the world, and they usually did not perform military service. They were townspeople. They were traders. They were not the sort of people who would volunteer to fight, nor were they conscripted to fight, because the conscripts were usually peasants. Jews were not aristocrats, and therefore they weren't warriors. In medieval Europe, the commanders of armies were noblemen who then served their lord. So Jews didn't fit into any of those patterns. They weren't peasants who got conscripted. They weren't noblemen who served as commanders. They were out of the picture. That doesn't necessarily mean the Jews were all meek and mild. It just meant that they didn't serve in armies. We touched on this a little bit, but let's let's zoom in. When and why did Jews stop taking pride in their army service, or when did it become less of something they took pride in? I think it depends on the country you're looking at. So most of the Jews in North America today are descended from uh, Jewish immigrants from the former Russian Empire. And in that part of the world, the Jewish encounter with the military was usually a pretty sad one, in that Jews didn't want to be drafted. They often fled the country because they didn't want to be drafted. And this wasn't just Jews. Lots of people found military service in Russia to be, uh, you know, to be a tremendous punishment. And so I can't really say that Jews who come from Russia always would have had such great experiences uh, in the military, in other parts of the world, in France, in Italy, in uh, what used to be called the Habsburg Empire, so today a lot of East Central Europe, even in Germany, where Jews had a mixed experience with, with the military, uh, Jews could have felt quite proud of their military service, really until, depends on the country, for example, for Germany, it would really only be in the 1920s and 30s, with the rise of a virulent, particularly Nazi, anti-Semitism, which dismissed any possibility of even acknowledging the Jews that served their countries militarily. There had been a little whiff of that during World War One, when there was anti-Semitism in German society that called for a census of uh, all the Jews serving on the front lines to make sure they were pulling their weight. The census was never published because, of course, it would have shown that Jews were pulling their weight. Some Jews were very, very hurt and offended by that. But most German Jews actually carried on and served their country quite nobly until the very end of World War I. So again, in, in most of the Western world, Jews retained a real pride in their military service until uh, the Shoah. And of course, in, in the United States and in Canada, Jews continued to serve because they were not destroyed in World War II. They served with great distinction in the Second World War and with great pride. Over half a million Jews in North America served uh, in, uh, in the Second World War and another half million in the Soviet Union in the Red Army. And what's really interesting is that to this day in the Soviet Union, uh, Jews who had served in the Red Army retain a tremendous pride in their, in their achievements, whereas in the United States, the story of the Jews in the Second World War is relatively forgotten. And so, you know, to cover Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the Middle East, North America, what kind of sources did you use to cover such a wide swath of territory? Well, that's a, that's a really good question, because when I wrote the book, I had a choice. I could try to write an encyclopedia, or I could try to write an analytical book that would at least bring in all of these uh, countries together, but uh, under the guise of arguments rather than detail. Some people who have read the book 
got unhappy because they look up their relative and they write me an email and they say, you know, why isn't my grandfather in the book? Right. Well, you know, a book of 350 pages or something, uh, I can't cover, you know, every one of those one million Jews who served in the Red Army or in the U.S. Army in World War II. But there are a lot of interesting characters in the book, some really, really interesting people. Uh, so the sources are a combination. First of all, there are a lot of amateur historians and some professional ones who've touched on one aspect or another of this story, a little bit of this and that. It's in many different languages, written uh, over a very long period of time. I also have used uh, Jewish newspapers from the late 18th century through the 19th and early 20th century, which were filled with articles really boasting with pride about Jews who served in one place or another. And then I selectively used archives. I couldn't use archives for every country in every period. But there were some stories in the book that were just so interesting that I decided that I had to really dig in deep and go into an archive. Best example would be when I use the French military archives, which are beautifully preserved, and they have the service record of every single officer who served in the French army from the mid-1800s until World War II. And there were hundreds upon hundreds of Jewish military officers, and I had their dossiers right in front of me. That was a lot of fun. Any reason why the French are such fastidious record keepers? Um, I think it has really to do with the centralized state that France is a country that from very early on, its center was in Paris, everything was decided in Paris. It also had one of the first great modern armies, the French uh, Revolution leading to the Napoleonic armies. And the really funny thing is that the records that survived in the service dossiers, even when other dossiers got destroyed, were the pension dossiers. Because one mm -hmm. thing every soldier wanted to make sure of is that they got their pension. And from those remnants, you're able to reconstruct the lives of, again, hundreds and hundreds of Jewish soldiers who served all over the French Empire, who had incredibly exciting lives. And uh, there's also the fact that these French archives weren't destroyed. A lot of the German uh, archival material was destroyed during the war. The material in Paris was fortunately spared. Mm -hmm. The army is not just another institution in society. It, it's directly connected to notions of citizenship, right? So what does the relationship between Jews and the army tell us about the relationship to the state? Well, in general, in a country where Jews are well-treated and where they're respected and they have social mobility, in general, those countries are going to be more open to Jews in the army and vice versa. So the army is kind of like a thermometer or a barometer or whatever you want to call it that measures or it's an indication of the general situation of Jews in, 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 in the country in which they live. So, again, in France, where uh, Jews were emancipated very early on, anti-Semitism certainly existed. But nonetheless, the French state was, was technically uh, meritocratic. You find Jewish uh, officers as early as the Napoleonic period. And one of the great, I think, indicators of the openness of French society is that although France was torn apart by the Dreyfus affair, which was an affair centering around anti-Semitic uh, accusations against a Jewish army officer, at the end of the day, Dreyfus was acquitted. And even while he was rotting away on Devil's Island, there were hundreds of Jewish officers throughout the empire getting promoted, doing their jobs, doing their work. So how Jews do in the army really tells you something about Jews in, in the state. The fact that in Germany, Jews could become, um, they were drafted as soldiers, but they couldn't become officers because German society had a very different view of Jews than France. Jews were allowed a certain kind of mobility, but not too much. Only in the First World War 
were Jews allowed to become officers, and even then only up to about the rank of, uh, of captain. The oppression of Jews in Russia translates itself into the military, where Jews had a difficult experience, and it was almost impossible for a Jew to become an army officer. And then last, we had the example of the United States, which had a very anti-Semitic military tradition, and yet in the Second World War, it was open to men of talent, and there were a couple of dozen Jewish generals, largely in logistics, supply, um, men who did amazing, amazing technological accomplishments. So there's a direct connection between the general nature of a country's attitude towards Jews and uh, the kind of role they play in the army. This is mostly a story about men, right? What, what does it say about Jewish masculinity? Well, that, that's a point that I wanted to raise right at the beginning of the book. It is, it is a story about men. It's not that I neglect women altogether, because women have played an important role, a much more important role than I think some of us might immediately think of. There's, there is no notion of men as being inherently warlike and women not. This whole notion of men are from Mars and women are from Venus, I, I'm not going to get into that. I think that women, <laughs> women historically have played a very important role uh, in the home front, uh, raising money, involved in charitable activities, working as nurses, working in hospitals. And this is not necessarily a role that was forced on them. I mean, one thing I found in my research is a lot of women's groups in United Kingdom, France, Germany, United States, you know, pretty much any country, they supported their men in uniform. And in that sense, Jewish women were really not that different from, from anybody else. But you're right. This is a book mainly about, about men. And it's about Jewish men who really have a double burden because they're fighting because they want to prove themselves. They want to prove that they are worthy of being accepted as they're French or they're German or they're Italian. But they have another burden, which is to prove themselves as men, because anti-Semitism, so much of anti-Semitism, centers around notions of, of Jewish weakness, of effeminacy, of, of cowardice. There are so many anti-Semitic jokes about Jews in the army being weak or, or cowardly and the like. And so when that Jew goes into the army, they have a big chip on their shoulder, and it has, it has at least as much to do with proving themselves as men as it does with, with national patriotism. So I want to talk a little bit about chapters four and five. They, they kind of build to a crescendo that is World War I. Why is that such a pivotal moment? I think World War I is pivotal for all of Europe. It's much less so for us in North America, even though I'm speaking to you from Canada, where World War I was very important because uh, they were fighting in the war from the very beginning. The United States entered the war late and had relatively few casualties, and it doesn't have the same meaning. World War I destroyed the European civilization of the long 19th century. It had the same meaning to, 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 to everyone, not just to Jews. But to Jews, it then had a special, a special meaning. First, that um, Russia was seen as the Jews' historic oppressor, and so a lot of Jews the world over actually sympathized with Germany because German Jews or Austrian Jews were relatively much, much better treated. So the notion that this was a war against an oppressor of the Jews, meaning Russia, meant a lot to many Jews the world over. But there was also a darker side to it in World War I, because you had lots of Jews on all sides. There were Jews in the French and the British army and so on, but then, of course, hundreds of thousands of Jews in, in the Russian army. And there was this tremendous fear during the war 
a fear that had existed previously but reached a crescendo, that a Jew might kill another Jew in battle. And this was a subject of rabbinic sermons and of newspaper articles and of short stories and rumors about a Jew who kills another, you know, an enemy, an enemy troop. And then just as the guy is dying, he calls out the Shema Yisrael or um, the uh, Jew who's killed the other soldier finds tefillin in the corpse's uh, belongings. This was a real um, fear that shows that Jews who are trying to be so patriotic as Russians or Germans or French or Americans or whatever are also very much aware of their sense of their common Jewish identities. So World War I represents both a triumph in terms of Jewish patriotism, but also this Jewish solidarity and the fear of one Jewish uh, soldier killing his brother. And then the, the next chapter is, is titled The World Wars as Jewish Wars. Why do you label it that way? Well, it was kind of a, an aside, or not an aside, a, a little bit of a, of a reference to an unfounded and anti-Semitic accusation, which accused the world wars as being somehow fomented by Jews, which is not true at all. I was trying to reclaim that phrase in a more positive way, which is that um, in the world wars, you have Jews the world over uniting. Uh, where they feel that they have certain common interests. And in, in the book, I really talk about three world wars, not so much World War I. The first one I talk about is the Spanish Civil War, where Jews, again, throughout the world, felt very sympathetic for the Spanish Republic in its fight against Franco and, and, and the nationalists because their enemy was fascism. So, yes, many of the Jews who fought in Spain were not religiously Jewish. They were not Zionists. They were communists but they were resolutely against fascism. That united them. In World War II, it was also very clear who the enemy was. It wasn't like World War I, where you could have Jews on both sides and you know, they're patriotic in different directions. There was only one enemy in, in, in World War II. It was Hitler. Hitler was Amalek. He was the, 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 the destroyer of the Jewish people, and this united Jews the world over. And then I, in the final chapter... I then get to the last Jewish world war of the 20th century, which is 1948, when Jews the world over took an active part in helping um, create the state of Israel. And so 1948, is, is it a rupture or is it a continuation? It's both. It's a rupture in that Jews have not had a sovereign state. And it's a rupture in that Jews do things in 1948 that they haven't done before. You've got Jews in the United States raising money, and some of their activity is legal, some of it's illegal, as they smuggle weaponry or, or machinery to make weapons to, to Palestine. They haven't done that before. That's new. It's also new in that you have volunteer fighters, a few thousand volunteer fighters from throughout the world. Some of them had been World War II vets. Some of them had been too young to fight in the war. They go to Palestine, and they fight for Palestine. It's similar in some ways to the Spanish Civil War, where there also had been Jewish volunteers who, who fought in the international brigades. But this is different, because that now they're fighting to create a sovereign Jewish state. That is, that's new. But as I try to show throughout the whole book, as I get to the last chapter, yes, it's, it's, it's new. There's never been a state of Israel in modern times. But the notion of Jews throughout the world having common interests and coming together to try to promote them the sense of solidarity, and the 
the ability to use military force. The Jews, you know, a lot of those Jews who fought in 48 had fought in World War II. They knew what they were doing. They were, they were trained officers. Just to give uh, one example, I'm here in Toronto, not far from where I live. Uh, there was a young man, grew up in the 1920s, named Ben Dunkelman, who uh, his father was a manufacturer here. Well, Ben went off to Palestine as a young man in the 1930s, and then he fought in World War II, became major in the uh, European theater. And then and he winds up in Palestine uh, in the 1948 war, and he was a brigade commander and a very important figure in the war. Uh, he commanded the brigade that conquered uh, the Lower Galilee, including Nazareth. Um, there were other famous volunteers as well. Uh, in the United States, the most famous one is um, Mickey Marcus who had been a true World War II hero, and then he becomes the commander on the Jerusalem front. So that's the continuity I'm getting at, is that a lot of these Jews who fight in 48 had had battle experience previously, and yet they're using that experience to create something totally new. Mm-hmm. All right, Derek, it's time now for the, the lightning round, as I'm calling <laughs> it. We'll get, get, get your thoughts on, uh, some quick thoughts on, on a few issues. Sure. So uh, first of all, how did you get, how did you get interested in the topic? Well, there's a long answer. The short answer, the, the short answer is one of my closest friends and I were talking about a dozen years ago. And I said, you know, I'm, I, I'm between books. What would you like to read a book on someday? And he said, I'm really interested in the relationship between Jews and armies and this whole problem of Jews killing other Jews in battle. And I thought about it. And then the longer answer is I realized that although I've been teaching and writing history for a very long time, um, I've always written about Jewish political power in sort of indirect ways. I've written about state making, I've written about technology, I've written about economic power in Jewish history. But if you write about power in, in any country and for, for, for any people, uh, the most raw and, and direct application of power is the military. Why had I never really thought seriously about this question? And then I began to think about the sort of things we began with. This notion that Jews are meek and mild and they don't fight and they have nothing to do with the military. And I began to think, well, that's not true. You know, and I then started doing the research and really getting deeper and deeper into the topic. So it was a combination of a stray remark by a friend of mine, but it really hit a nerve. And then a few years later, there's a book. Right. Uh, in Barnes and Noble, military history has its own section. Uh, why is that? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? That's a great question, because there's almost these two worlds. There's military history, which is practiced by military historians, and it's read very avidly by um, people in all walks of life. Well, obviously, armies are fascinating. People are fascinated by the story of war. And yet professional historians, and the people who teach in universities, for the most part, they avoid the military. They work on economics, society, politics, exactly my problem. I had never really thought seriously about the military. About 25 years ago, we began to get this thing called the new military history, where scholars looked at the army as an institution, like, I don't know, banking or the school system. And they realized, how can we understand countries without understanding their armies? And cultural historians who work on things like memory and commemoration found a goldmine of material in the study of war because the memories of war stay with us generation after generation. So scholars are beginning to combine the study of warfare and other aspects of history. But still to this day, 
a lot of popular history is directed towards military history, and a lot of scholarly history is directed towards something else. And general readers are understandably very attracted to military history. And I think it's the responsibility of scholars to um, integrate military history more successfully, you know, more fully into, into what they do. How has researching and writing the book changed the way you see the world? Well, I'm really glad I wrote the book because it forced me to, again, to confront aspects of not just Jewish history, but history as such. So right now at the University of Toronto, I'm teaching a, a course to 90 students called War, State, and Society, in which a lot of the ideas that I came across from the book are now being you know, developed into a course for, for, um, from my students. But it also really has helped me change my way of thinking about Jewish history, that Jews are people who definitely have suffered exile, dispersion, persecution, massacre, the horrors of the Shoah, but also a remarkably re resilient civilization that has been able to integrate into various parts of the world and that has really not had any limitations if limitations are not placed upon them. And the fact that Jews have been commanders of, of the military that uh, uh, you know, during the time of the Dreyfus Affair, there was a Jewish guy commanding or, uh, fortifications in Algeria that uh, Jewish experience cannot be limited to that of rabbis or people in business or professors. <laughs> the Jewish experience is very, very broad. It, it encompasses all walks of life, and that includes the military. So I think the book has really broadened my thinking about Jewish history, but, but also about history as such. Derek, if I'm at a cocktail party, uh, what, tidbit can, what tidbit from the book can I use to impress someone? Oh, I would love that one. Uh, the tidbit of the book, well, I found the correspondence of a brilliant young Jewish naval officer in the, in, in the army in, in, in um, overseas in Indochina, today's Vietnam. And he was corresponding with his brother, who was a famous French Jewish writer, right during the middle of the Dreyfus Affair. And these letters, these handwritten, scribbled letters that I found in the National Archive in Paris are the letters of a brilliantly intelligent, thoughtful man who is proud to be a Jew, and he's proud to be a Frenchman. And he writes to his brother at the depth of the Dreyfus Affair. He writes, I don't want to be an army captain anymore. I just want to be myself. But he doesn't quit the army. He stays. He gets promoted. He becomes an absolutely essential figure in the French military in Indochina. Then he becomes a bank president after World War One in Indochina. And as an old man, this guy I wrote about, Fernand Bernard, he became a leader of the French resistance against Hitler during World War II, died at the age of 96 in his family home in southern France. These are the kind of people I write about in the book. They're, they're pretty tough people. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my tidbit was... Um you know, most people know the GI Bill, uh, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act that allowed millions of veterans to go to college. Sure. But uh, pe people may not know that some Americans used the GI Bill to attend the Hebrew University or the Technion because the GI Bill paid foreign universities tuition to relieve the crunch of, uh, you know, on American campuses. Yeah, anywhere. They could go anywhere. So some of them wind up in Palestine. They're there at the Hebrew University or the, Techni uh, the Technion. The war comes and a lot of these young men, they've got army experience. They go off and they fight in the IDF, 
And the uh, U.S. State Department's a little nervous about what's happening. And there's some correspondence with the Hebrew University. And they say, you know, what's happening to our our Americans uh, under the GI Bill? And somebody from the university writes back, oh, they're they're continuing with their studies just like the rest of our young men. Well, they're all fighting. Right. So Mm -hmm. the letter back was a little disingenuous. Sure. they, They went off to fight. Well, Derek, we've taken a lot of your time, so uh, any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Well, um, I would just encourage people to be open to thinking about the Jewish experience as encompassing you know, all sorts of walks of life, military being just one of them. But now I'm uh, moving on to something else. I'm writing a book actually for a general audience. It's a biography of Theodor Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, for a wonderful series published by Yale University Press called Jewish Lives. It's a series of biographies of, uh, of famous uh, people in Jewish history. And I'm having a great time writing a biography for a general audience um, that uh, just tells a story of a fascinating man who, in his own way, uh, achieved greatness. He couldn't serve in the army. He had a heart defect. So that disqualified him from service. And that heart defect also killed him at the age of 44. So there is a military connection there because Herzl achieved through politics what he could not achieve through military service. Mm-hmm. Derek, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Jews and the Military, A History, published in 2013 by Princeton University Press, out in paperback this month. The author is Derek Penslar. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.